Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Well, good morning. Yeah, this is off to a roving start. This is a raving start. That, that, that's why this is like, did you know that in the church calendar, this is the least attended service of the year, the one after Thanksgiving? So now you know why. There it is. And uh, hey, it is, it is good to see everybody. But you know what? It, uh, my name is Tim. If this is your first time with us, welcome to the Vineyard. Um, it, it is, uh, I think, kind of cool that uh, we have things that happen like this, and we're talking about a humble king. Because there are times in life where, indeed, things come along that will humble you and put you in a position of realizing you're just not in control as much as you wish you were. And and uh, have you, did you grow up with anybody that was like had? Oh, we're now we're wired up again. All right, here, time out. Oh, <laughs> oh, this is teamwork. <laughs> that I'm used to. There you go. Okay, thank you, thank you, Skip, and thank you guys. I know this is. You know, you get uh, things going on. Yeah, thank you, Skip. And guys in the booth, thank you. Thank you. Um, where was I? About being, being humbled, yeah. We're starting a new series uh, called The Humble King. And it's like Tom mentioned to me when we were talking about this, that it seems like when you have the word king, you would never put the word humble with it. Right? Because, I mean, if you're the king, there's no need to be humble. You can just you do what you want to do. You have the authority. You have the power. Uh, people have to recognize it at some point. And so there's no need to be humble. And I think that is the great and amazing contrast of the God that we serve and that we love and that Christmas itself puts a kind of a microscope down on just to show us the humility of God. And so we're going to unpack this for the next, for the rest of the year. We're going to talk a little bit about this as we move on into Christmas and then even uh, the service between the New Year's and Christmas Day. And uh, when I, I used to have a friend named, well, he was an acquaintance named Wayne. This guy goes way back to the early days of surfing. And Wayne was one of these guys who was, he was who he was. You've ever been around people like that? They were not affected by anything. They were just who they were. They didn't have to prove themselves to anybody. Uh, and I, I used to watch him, and I thought, man, this guy is honestly, he doesn't know how cool he is, which was, that was so cool. And uh, because he, would, he was a great surfer, but he would bury his board in the sand at night, leave it for the next morning, bury it in the sand. And then he would transform himself from this very cool surfer to this very slick-looking dancing machine in the evenings. <laughs> And I thought, that's very uncool for surfers, you know. But he didn't care. He was who he was. And then he would get all just slicked up, and then he would head up to the magic attic. Some of you know, that was, that was our place, right? I mean, that was the hangout on the beach, down in the pavilion. That's where we went. And, and he would go, and, man, he would have the best time in the world. But then comes sunrise, back on the beach, changing his clothes behind one of the raft boxes, the lifeguard place, putting on his baggies, and digging his board out of the sand, paddling out as the sun came up. Nothing affected him. He was who he was. He didn't have to prove himself to anybody. He didn't have to brag. He didn't have to defend himself. 
He just was who he was, and he was very comfortable in it. And, you know, we don't really come across people like that that often in our lives because we are frail. We're subject to wanting to be liked, and we're subject to wanting to fit in and subject to to so many things that when we do come across a true, humble person, it really, it does something for it. And some of us really confuse humility with weakness. And I think that's the thing about our God being a humble God is we think. But see, some people would have looked at Wayne and, and thought, man, what a, you know, he wasn't weak. He was perfectly strong. He was who he was. He did what he wanted to do. And he just, he was in control of his life and he did it. And, uh, and I mean, there was no harm to anybody done and it was good. And so, uh, you know, looking at the humble king, we're going to be over in Philippians, the second chapter, where there is a, there's a passage of Scripture that has probably been the most unpacked, dissected, looked at, defined. People, theologians down through the ages have just looked at this particular part of Scripture and have struggled with it at times, but also there's such a beauty in it. And this is our, this is our main body of text for this Series. Now, let me, let me say this, too. This letter in Philippians, the second chapter, this letter is being written from, remember the guy Paul? Paul, the apostle who went out and planted churches and, and was one time a Christian hater, and he hunted them down to kill them and to jail them. Well, God gets a hold of him, right? Turns him around, and he becomes an advocate and also a church planter, a leader in the early church. And, uh, and so this is the guy writing this letter to a church in Philippi. This kind of medium-sized town, Philippi, was, but it was, uh, it was an influential town. This t- town, Philippi, uh, had multi-ethnicity. It was, uh, it was quite the place. And Paul is actually in jail while he's writing this letter to this young church in this town. So think about that as we read this. It's coming straight from the jail cell right straight to the local church in Philippi. If you want to read about this church, how it was started, go over to the book of Acts, the 16th chapter, and you can read about how this church was started. And it's an amazing story. Amazing story in that uh, Paul and Silas go to this area to preach Jesus. They come to the town. There's no synagogue in the town because that's what Paul usually did. On the Sabbath, he would go to a synagogue and he would worship and then he would share Christ with who he could come in contact with and then he would plant a church in that area and then he would move on and do the same thing, set up leaders and move on, do the same thing. Well, in Philippi, there was no synagogue, probably because there was not enough male Jews in the city in order to substantiate having one. So he went to the river, which is where a lot of people would go to pray around a body of water, which we have a nice one. And, uh, and so he went down to a body of water on a river, and there were a group of people there praying. And, one of, and there were a group of women there praying. One of the ladies' name was Lydia. Lydia was a business lady who owned a, we would call it a textile business, dyeing fabrics and all. And so Paul sits down, and he talks to these women that are praying there along the riverbank. And he tells him about Jesus. Now, Lydia was a good person even before this. She believed there was a God. She believed there was a good God. But then Paul explains even more detail about Christ coming and who Jesus was. And and she comes to know Jesus. Amazing thing. But as you will see again and again and again in the book of Acts, and that it wasn't just Lydia, that so many times it's them and their household. 
I mean, that's a fascinating thing to me that you see. And that's part of this culture, too, is that when the leaders of the household went one way, the rest of the household was inclined to move the same direction. And so Lydia, all of her employees, her family, those that lived in her house, they believed that she had probably the largest house in the area. Um, she asked Paul and them, hey, if you consider me a believer, why don't you stay with me and do your work out of my house? And so the church at Philippi was planted out of this merchant lady's house named Lydia. Isn't that a beautiful story? And it remains so in that area. That's where Paul kind of worked out of when he came through the region. And so she comes to Christ, this letter that's been written to this church, right? And, uh, and the church starts. But, you know, the other members of the church is fascinating because Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. They're thrown into jail for casting a demon out of a young girl whom was the fortune teller. And this is in Acts 16. You ever read this? It's, it's really in there. And, and so, you know, this girl who had made her handlers, her promoters, a lot of money through fortune telling, was following Paul and Silas around going, they tell the truth, they tell the truth, they tell the truth. So much so and so crazily that it just got on Paul's nerves. And finally he had had enough of it. And he turns around to her and he casts the devil out of her. Right, right there. You know, commands the demon to leave and she goes quiet. And she loses that ability to be able to do what she was doing, which really messes with her handlers, the people that were making money off of her. So what do they do? They throw Paul and Silas in jail for it, beat them, and they're sitting there in stocks and bonds during the night, stocks and bonds, and, uh, you know, they're be they've been beat, and they start singing. They start singing praises to God. They've been beat. They've been shackled, and the jailer is listening, and all the different prisoners are listening to the songs of God come up from these two guys who have been beaten for their faith and for freeing this young girl. And all of a sudden, an earthquake comes. The doors fly open, not just to Paul and Silas's cell, but to all the cells in the jail. And Paul and Silas are in the middle to make sure they're very secure, in the middle of the whole uh, facility. And so the jailer's freaking out. He's like, man, the people that I work for are going to kill me when they see that all the, you know, all the prisoners are gone. So he draws his sword to kill himself, and he hears a voice go, hey, don't do it. We're still here. And he's like, what? You guys, the door was open. You didn't leave? Like, no, we're still here. What happens? Jailer comes to know Jesus. Jailer takes Paul and Silas home with him to his family. They bandage their wounds where they'd been beaten and the whole family comes to Jesus. So let's get this straight. This church has a business lady who opened her home to start the church in. It has a young girl who was demon-possessed, who is free now. And it has a jailer and his family. That was the church plant. How's that for an exciting group to start a church with, you know? Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? And, uh, and so that's the church plant. And that's the group. And of course, it's grown just a little bit now as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. Now, this is his favorite church of all time. He loves this church. But it's not a church without problems. I mean, it's got gossip going on in it. There's all kind of issues and 
grumbling and complaining, and there's false teaching that is slid along in the church, but he dearly loves this church. This church has been a supporter of his on his missionary journeys from day one. I mean, they have financially been committed to him, to planting churches, to seeing that the gospel went out. They have been there for him, so he really cares about this church. So with the gossip and the grumbling that's going on with certain personalities in the church and all, Paul writes this letter to them to try to call them back to where they should be. And he's calling them back to a humility, to be humble in the midst of this with one another and before their God so that they don't get so haughty and they don't fracture in the church. You know, groups, I mean, churches fracture because of lack of humility, right? I mean, because of pride and because of lack of humility, churches break off into factions and groups and things, and this is about to happen here, and and Paul knows their heart is right where it should be. And he's like calling them back, so he looks for the example of humility that would really touch their heart. And what example does he find? Jesus. And that's where we join the Scripture. And I want us to read it together as we have uh, many times Scripture. Can we do this? Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Let's go. Therefore, if you have being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any sharing spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Ambition, vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own, but to each. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, bless the reading of your word this morning. Bring it alive to us, God. Holy Spirit, would you come and indeed dwell in the midst of your people? Lord, help us to understand to a life-changing degree, the power of humility and how it was expressed in your coming to this earth. Help me, Lord, in my weakness this morning. And Lord, I pray you give me the gift of teaching over the next few minutes. And Lord, that our lives would be changed today, truly affected by your word and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've got your booklet, and uh, you probably haven't read through it yet, but in the, the first chapter and in the introduction, that's where we're going to be this morning. But I want to point out a few things. One is, like the booklet says, humility matters. Humility 
matters. Have you ever met someone uh, that just shocked you? Like they were such, uh, let's say, a... Um, What's the word I want to use? You know, they were, they were not like overwhelmingly present when they were with you, but they were there and they were such a nice person and they seemed so gentle and they're so kind and you think that's a nice person, only to find out later this person had done amazing things, that you were shocked that they had done what they had done because their demeanor and their personality didn't seem to... Uh, didn't seem to coincide with their greatness, in other words. We have, a friend, we have a friend here like that, you know, Linus Morris. Linus was with us at our meal last Wednesday night, Thanksgiving meal. And, you know, Linus is, was that type of... I've known Linus for 30 years, and he's the same Linus that I met 30 years ago right now. And what you don't know about Linus is that guy is... He has planted hundreds of churches, Started a movement of churches in Europe. Planting hundreds of churches all over the world. Still does into his mid-70s, right on. Still out training leaders. Still out preaching the gospel. He's got multiple degrees with lots of letters behind him. And, and all, I mean, and is one of the nicest, kindest, humble, gentle, most fun to be with people you'll ever meet. Now, if you just sat down with him and started talking with him, you'd think, hey, he's a nice guy, you know, nice California old guy, you know. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you find out. It's just you can't, you can't take someone's humble demeanor and suddenly believe there's not something of immense power and import there. But that's what we do many times. Humility matters. James and John these grown men, right? Grown men, fishermen. When we first meet them, they're fishing, and Jesus says, come follow me, right? The Father's with them, and they've got this fishing business, a pretty good-sized business, evidently. And uh, so they've been traveling with Jesus for a little bit of time, and their mom goes to Jesus. I mean, these burly fishermen, you know. Mom goes to Jesus and says, I have a request. And Jesus goes, what is it? I want my boys to sit at your right hand and your left hand when your kingdom is set up. Of course, she's thinking he's going to rule in this present age. Now, Jesus is going to be made the king, and you're going to need some leaders. And so, how about my boys? You know, I mean, these are grown men. Reminded me, I read a biography of Douglas MacArthur, General, General Douglas MacArthur. And when he was at pretty close to the pinnacle of his, his mother was running interference for him. I mean, this guy was like the man's man, general. His mother was calling up, hey, you need to, you know, you need to elevate my son right behind the scenes. You know how moms are. I'm not putting your moms down, okay? Go for it. Do the best you can for your kids. I get it. I totally get it. But Jesus has a response to her. It's really, really interesting. And he, he's like, I don't think you know what you're asking. I don't think you know what you're asking to want to sit at my right hand. Plus, it's not up to me to do this. The father is going to be up to him what he wants to do, but I don't think, I don't think you get what you're asking. And this is in Matthew 20 and 25 through 28. And then he teaches them a lesson. He says this, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life. In other words, you want to sit at my right hand and 
my lifting. Do you want to walk with me through what I'm about to walk through? You see that? The way up is down in the kingdom. It's Jesus. I don't, this is the, the most beautiful thing to meditate on is to think about God, Jesus Christ, having always existed, being with his Father for all time, never having not been there in eternity, all-powerful, sees all of creation from the beginning, and yet in this moment in time comes down, humility, comes down into a little frail package of a baby. Never not been by his father's side. Amazing humility of God comes down. Humility matters. Humility leads us. I mean, I like to be around people who are humble. Not you. Some of the strongest people I know are humble people. It's like I said, like the guy Wayne. You know, I didn't have to wonder where he was coming from. I, I knew he wasn't pushed right and left by this and that or the other. If he, if he was heady, he raced go-karts too, which was crazy. Man, the first time I went to his house and he had these go-karts up on, I was like, you are like the awesomest person in the world I've ever seen, you know. And, uh, but he didn't have to prove himself. He, you know, we want to follow people many times who have this quiet inner strength and humility about them. And Jesus tells his disciples, he's like, you know, if you want to follow me, then this is where I'm headed. It's not up, it's down. Because it'll have to, we'll have to go this way before we go that way. And so humility matters. Humility leads. John 13, 17, do you remember that story? You know, the Last Supper, Jesus gets up, right? He takes the towel. And I can imagine the, the disciples are looking around going, what's he going to do? What's he doing? What's he doing? Grabs that basin of water. And then he begins to get down on his knees before them. And he starts to wash their feet. And, of course, Peter, typical to his style, you know, throws a fit and says, you're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to wash mine. You know, like, you're Jesus. You're not going to wash my feet. But Jesus did that, and here's what he says. Jesus said, after he had washed your feet, and I think he's asking us this today, do you understand what I have done for you? He looks at his disciples after he washes their feet and says, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you see what I'm doing? Do you understand? And of course, they didn't get it then. Humility matters. Humility leads. And humility transforms. It transforms us. I told the story of of a bully in high school back a few weeks ago. And, you know, humility transformed his life when he finally talked to me and apologized to me for all those years and things that we experienced when we were young. It was the humility. It was God coming into his life that transformed his whole posture. So he apologized. Now, humility is not, it's, it's not low self-esteem, okay? Some of us think that here's humility. We think this is humility. Oh shucks, you know. No, I'm just a worm. I'm not anything. I'm not anybody. You know, Jesus didn't walk around with his head down. Jesus didn't walk around like that. Jesus walked around with his head up, 
and his eyes forward, doing exactly what God called him to do. We, we confuse that. Humility is not a lack of self-esteem. It's other-esteemed. Do you get that? That's exactly what Jesus did. He did it for his Father, and he did it for us. It's other-esteemed. That's humility. It's not about me. It's about him, and it's about you. It's about others. It's not about my low self-esteem. Because you really can't serve the way we're all called to serve as long as we don't think we have anything to serve with. But it's about other, other esteemed. And so let's don't confuse it. Let's don't, you know, God is not here to see us as a beat down people. He's, he's here to see us as an empowered but humble people to serve in the kingdom and to be representative of the humble king who came in all power. How much power does it take to be God Almighty Creator and then allow yourself to be come down into a small, frail package? Is that not power? Is, we don't see power in the smallness of things many times. Do you see that restricting yourself when you have all power in the universe to that frail baby in the flesh, cloaked with the same thing that we're cloaked with and that we walk with and the same frailties? That's power in humility. Coming down to us from there. Humility transforms. It's not demeaning of yourself. It's not talking bad about yourself. It's actually humility gives meaning to yourself. And Jesus is the example, the humble king. You know, I never saw Jesus. All these times I've read the Gospels, I have never seen any place where it says he ran anywhere. <laughs> you ever notice that? Now, he did look like he was late a few times. <laughs> I mean, Lazarus would tell you that. Um, <laughs> and so would his sisters. And, um, you know, it looked like it, but he wasn't. You got to read the book to get that one. Um, but he never, he never was in a hurry. He never was pushed around. He stood his ground, but he stood it humbly. And he stood it powerfully. Because he knew who he was, he knew where he was, and he knew where he was going. And he was able to do that with great humility. And there was power in that. Power in that. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, our scripture says, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And see, that death on a cross is mentioned in there. I mean, we wear crosses around our neck and in our ears, and we get them tattooed on our arms and, and uh, Celtic crosses, um, uh, our heritage and all of that. But in this time, during this period of time, a cross, no one would ever, ever promote a cross because it was the most shameful, most horrible way to die and the most embarrassing way if you, were, if you died that way. And so there is not a more humble state of execution than crucifixion. Jesus humbled himself right on down until it was expressed in the most shameful way to die in that day, and that is on a cross. I mean, his life, he brought it all the way down to us and right on down so that in that humility there would be resurrection coming. Even on a cross, 
in Luke 1, 31 through 33, we get to the story finally, you know, of this humble king. And angel Gabriel's talking to Mary and says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus, Jesus was like, if you pick a common name, and I hate to say common names, right? Because there's no such thing as a common name, but you know what I mean? Like Tim, that's a regular name, right? So like Tim, it, I mean, Jesus was not this special name. There were lots of people named Jesus during this period of time. So he's still humbling himself. He even takes on a name of a regular person. You know, he doesn't have this extravagant name as far as his fleshly moniker there, his name. It's just the regular guy's name. He humbles himself right on down. God does this. Jesus does this. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great. And here's what's going to happen after this life. He, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. But in between that first part and that last part is a whole life of humility and God bringing himself right down to be able to live and to see and to experience what we do in this life so that he can redeem us and take us back. The humility of God is the power of salvation for us all. And it's an example, as Paul told this church in Philippi, of how we should live our lives. You know, there's hope in humility. When I see someone who humbly approaches life and walks through life in a steady pace, it gives me great hope. Look at that person. They, you know, they're not knocked side, sideways by things. You know, they just keep walking at this steady pace. There's a hope in that. And years ago, I heard a definition of hope that I really loved, and I have I've just grabbed it. This was probably back in the early 80s. And here's the definition. No, it was actually earlier than that. A guy named Bob Mumford gave me this definition. It's an unwavering expectation of good. Hope. An unwavering expectation of good. And in Jesus, that's what we see. An unwavering expectation of good to come. There's hope in humility. When you know who you are, when you know whose you are, when you know where you're headed, you can rest in hope and that unwavering expectation of good. We just finished a series in Esther, and we had a king in Esther, didn't we? Xerxes. Was he a humble king? <laughs> we got a great comparison here, right? I mean, that king, Xerxes, you could not even go in to see him unless he asked you to come in, right? What does our king do? He comes to us. He comes to us. The old kings, you have to have permission to go to. This king, he doesn't wait for you to come to him. He goes to you. He comes to you in the form of a little baby, in frailty and in humility, in order to say, I know you. I know you. I know what you're going through. I know your weakness. I know the things you struggle with. I know it. And I will take this all the way to the most shameful place it can go, straight to the cross, so that I can deliver you and save you. That's our king, not King Xerxes, who extends the, you know, the axe, the scepter. Which one is it? Jesus isn't waiting. He didn't wait on me to come to him. He's not waiting on you. He's here. He's here. That's right. 
He's here. You've heard me say it a thousand times. I didn't go to that surfing contest looking for God. Nope. But when I walked into that room that evening, Jesus walked in right behind me. He was right there. He followed me. He was there before I got there. He followed me there. He was in that room that night. And he's been calling me and been there with me every step of the way since then. And he's here now. He is a humble king. He is a powerful king. He is the king who comes to you. In your pamphlet, everybody have their little booklet? Do you have, do you have if you don't have one, we can get you one. Um, the words to this song are on the inside. It's humble king. It's on the inside of the booklet. I, I wonder if we could sing it together this morning. Can we do that? And just take a, a moment here. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you can learn more about us by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you need prayer, you can call us or email care at seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel called to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or text any amount to 84321 and follow the prompts.